0: Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean
1: Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Great episode for you today. Looking back on a very unknown or understudied part of the home front during the First World War. A story from out in British Columbia written by Grant Hader Menzies, titled Muggins, The Life and Afterlife of a Canadian Canine War Hero. This book tells the story of Muggins the dog, who was used during the First World War for fundraising. He would go through downtown Vancouver near the water, near the Empress Hotel, and on him he would have cans that people would donate money to and put money in the cans And he would go out every day and and take that money back to the Red Cross. And he became a local celebrity. People loved seeing him. And he was able to generate a significant amount of revenue during these fundraising campaigns. So that capacity to bring in money further increased his celebrity in the town. And there was a sense that he was a dog who was bigger than what he was doing. He became representative of the larger home front effort during the war. But at the same time, the story raises a lot of questions about human-animal interactions, the ethics behind that, not only in this particular case, but in the war effort, there there are plenty of examples of animals being used in combat. Certainly stories like War Horse have been told both on stage and on screen, uh, but dogs were also used In the first world war in the trenches, so it leads to a lot of questions. What are the impacts of human activity on animals who didn't have any say in this? And not only the animals who are used in combat, but just the environmental impact in Belgium, France during the first world war. A lot of wildlife is impacted there, not just in those years, but in subsequent years, and even up till today, where you still have lead and water and and places that, that the wildlife that was there before 1914 hasn't fully been able to recover so there's a lot of ethical issues about the impact of war on animals and in telling this story grant does a great job of building that in it would be easy to have a story that is just fully celebratory of muggins it's a a cute adorable dog running through victoria raising money as part of the war effort but he puts it into a larger context raises these broader questions and it makes for what is a cool story. There's no question that Muggins is a cool story, but it's a very well rounded study. So, very much enjoyed going through the book and really enjoyed my chat with Grant. So, let's get right into my discussion with Grant Hader Menzies. All right. And Grant Hader Menzies joins me now from Sydney, British Columbia, to talk about Muggins. Uh, Grant, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Uh, very excited that you're here and to talk about Muggins and the the book in general. As we said right before we started to record, it's a book about a dog, but it's not really a book about a dog. So, how do you think of the book in general? Like, I think a lot of people would look at it, look at the cover. There's a picture of, of Muggins, a very cute dog. It's fun to look at, but there's also a picture that indicates clearly that this is wartime. So, just to anyone who might be coming to this thinking, oh, it's a cute dog story. What what would you tell them? Well,
0: um, my my first intention in writing about any animal, especially animals that have been uh, have been used in in human wars, is to try to tell the truth without sentimentalizing the animal. Certainly. There's room for that. There are children's books about animals in war, animals on the home front, animals of all all kinds. I don't write that kind of book. I write uh, historical biographies, and uh, I'm interested in the facts. And one of the things, one of the parallels between being a biographer of human lives and of of animal lives is that you find you depend a lot on other people's impressions of the individual that you're writing about. And it's a matter of sifting through all of those and coming up with this as clear a picture as you can. It's never really very clear. But uh, interpreting the data, I in all of my books dealing with animals and humans, I want to try to be the voice for the animal, not in a sentimentalizing way, but in a way that puts, it, puts the animal within the human context so that people can understand the significance of what the animal did, whether it's an animal that, that saved lives in war by running messages to an artillery battery or uh, an animal like Muggins who stayed on the home front but raised the modern equivalent of a quarter of a million dollars to fund uh, charities that helped other animals injured on the battlefields of World War I, that helped um, children orphaned by the horrible events of the war in Europe that helped POWs uh, who uh, were in captivity in uh, Germany and elsewhere. And I think who just, uh, the, the fact that he inspired so many people and gave that inspiration on the home front, I found was every bit as meaningful to folks during war as the companionship of dogs on, uh, in the battlefield for soldiers. And so that's why the, the title refers to him as a, a war hero. He
1: really was. So I want to just get back before we get into some of the specifics of, of what Muggins did and sort of the significance of that. You, you said that part of what you're doing is giving a voice to animals. And I'm curious about how you do that or, or how one could do that, because just from a purely historical research way to look at it, human beings leave stuff for us. They leave clues uh, whether it's written, uh, video, photographs, and, and you can get a, a somewhat of a sense of their personality, f- especially from writing, or if you have a video of them speaking or, or something, yeah. animals don't leave us much, right? Animals, any 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 information you have about the animal is coming through a human voice. So, how can you try to suss out the voice of the animal? How how do you get a sense of? Because animals have personalities yes. they you know have distinct characteristics about them, so how do you try to do that when the clues that animals might leave us are so different from what all historians would be trained to look for
0: well, one of the starting points when I began writing about human and animal interactions several years ago was my own dog Freddie. He passed away in October of this past year, but he was with me for eleven years and We adopted him from from the BCSPCA. He had been rescued from a puppy mill when he was about two years old, and he had a lot of uh, trauma, residual trauma issues. Um, And he didn't know, coming from where he came from, didn't know how to be a, a, a normal dog. And so here we were humans in the position of teaching him how to be a dog, how to play with toys, how to do all the normal dog things that he'd never had a chance to learn from other dogs who were also traumatized uh, with him and his willingness to trust us enough to learn from us, to follow uh, our direction and to to become a happy, the happy dog he was capable of becoming made me think of other animals that have been through traumatic situations uh, who've been thrust into violent situations who've um, and of course that led me to the topic of animals in war. And it's really through his his willingness to trust, his courage that I don't think you'd find in a lot of humans who'd been similarly traumatized like that that really inspired me and I and because of him, because of wanting to give him a chance to live like a, a proper dog and have a, a fulfilled life. I wanted to understand these animals that had basically, uh, in many cases, given their own lives in wars that they didn't cause to save the lives of, of humans and give them a voice. Um, and um, it, it's, I think the, the technique of making a deceased individual, like a human, come back to life for, a, for biographical purposes is not that different from a, an animal especially if you never knew the, the human, if there's, there are no living people who you can sit down with. Um, in a few cases, I've, I've been lucky to find very old people who remembered meeting some of the individual people that I've, I've written about, that, that's sort of a plus if you can find that, I'm very lucky. What you do is you, you assemble as much data as you can, you sift the uh, sentimentalized stuff out, A lot of the articles written about muggins were written for entertainment purposes. There are a lot of uh, claims made about muggins that are are frankly incredible. Um, One of them was that he and and his siblings had been brought from Russia. I think because he was a Spitz or he was Pomeranian, and that was regarded as, as part of Russia. I really don't know how that got started. There were other stories as well. And then there are these eyewitness accounts that uh, were not part of the historical record that I discovered that I thought were were the tr- probably the truest image we're going to get of him. And the luckiest thing was when I was sifting through um, videos, video taped, transferred newsreel footage at the Royal BC Museum in Victoria, finding 30 seconds of, of uh, newsreel footage of Muggins in action from uh, 1918 about 1918, 1919, oh. and uh, seeing what he was like, watching, having the the luxury of seeing what people, how people reacted to him, perfect strangers walking past his, his donation table in the inner harbor, people getting off one of the ships, and people walking past and then turning around and coming back, petting him and leaving money in his tins. It's exactly what I read in so many written accounts. People couldn't resist him. And so I assume that accounts like that are true, and that they can be uh, they can be made part of the historical record.
1: And you see that with human beings too; that stories get sensationalized about them, and oh, yeah. things get overblown <laughs> sometimes. Like there's fantastical stories of oh yeah what people have done uh, <laughs> right. So yeah it's it's a very it's a very similar similar process. <laughs> I just say so. Uh, let's dive in a little bit to Muggins himself. So you, you've made reference to it that Muggins was used for. Fundraising during the First World War, he, w- he was used as a, a, a way to get people to participate in the war effort on the home front. So how did he do this? What was the process of getting Muggins to be a fundraiser? And you, you made reference to the $250,000 in, in contemporary terms. Just what was the time frame for that? And, and how excited were people to participate in this type of fundraising? Well, Muggins came to Victoria sometime
0: in about 1913, oh, sorry, 1916. He was born in 1913, uh, approximately, in the home of a, a wealthy philanthropist in Calgary. This is what the evidence points me to, and was brought out to Victoria by members of that man's family, and then somehow made his way in 1916 into the hands of a local woman, Beatrice Woodward, who... Came of working class English origins, was an absolute powerhouse like many of the women in World War I, Victoria. She was an, a manager, an organizer. She got stuff done. She belonged to all of these committees that were raising funds and awareness for the war effort in Victoria. And how she trained Muggins is not known, how she trained him to do what she did. But what she, they show up. Uh, in August of 1916, with muggins wearing two little cocoa tins on either side of his harness that have been retrofitted to serve as coin boxes, very much like the dogs that Beatrice would have seen back in England on train platforms uh, who were also used for this purpose. And he would sit on his table, which was set up near the Empress Hotel in the Inner Harbour, and would collect coins from passersby, as I've mentioned. But he also would go aboard the liners that that were still putting in at um, Victoria Harbour and collect coins from the passengers there. After a time, Beatrice had postcards made of muggins uh, in various poses, sometimes with soldiers, sometimes by himself, usually wearing his harness with the, the coin boxes. And these were given to people who had donated I have one of these that I bought from a rare uh, book dealer in the States, oddly enough. And it dates from about 1917 because Beatrice had special stamps made that would say, Muggins has raised $3,000, Muggins has raised $8,000. It's a lot of money in that at that time. We're talking between 1916 and 1919. So really, only three years, and he would also he had a little stand in downtown Victoria where he would would receive donations. There were a lot of children involved with this. Um, children would walk around the downtown with him to collect donations in more innocent times then and uh, I actually know the granddaughter of a woman who had done this collecting for him, but one of the one of the wonderful stories I found, by uh, incidentally, by an American visitor to Victoria, was how uh, he observed Muggins go aboard one of the cruise, one one of the ships, uh, not cruise ships, but the liners, and Muggins would head immediately for the casino downstairs. And he would run around the table where the men were sitting, playing cards, and uh, he would nudge their knees. And if no one paid attention, he would sit there and bark. And if they still didn't pay any attention, he would jump on the table and sit on their cards until they gave him money. <laughs> and the the irony of this is that Muggins would frequently elicit big like, like bills, not just coins. And his um, his guardian Beatrice Woodward told a reporter once that <laughs> Muggins came to her back to her down on the dock looking very woebegone, and uh, she opened up his tins. They were st- stuffed with bills, hundreds of dollars. But he was sad because he couldn't hear the the coins jingling. He didn't think he had done his job because he couldn't. He didn't <laughs> feel the weight of the coins or the coins jingling. That tells you a lot about him. There's another story that that does the same when he, he would run up from the dock with his tins full to the Red Cross headquarters in downtown Victoria. It was several blocks and had to climb 13 stone steps up to the second story of the building where the headquarters was and was observed on one particular day by a passerby struggling to get up the steps and this passerby then notified the police, and then the SPCA were notified. A group of people gathered around and they they apparently helped him up the steps and into the Red Cross office and then started haranguing the staff. They're saying, "How could you do this to this little dog? How could you do this he's he's being he's being abused." Well, they emptied out the tins. Muggins would do a little, a little dance and, and bark around, uh, in running around in circles and bark with his empty tins on. Ran back out the door to go back down to the, to the docks to gather more. Clearly he was happiest when his tins were full. And if it meant you know extra trouble climbing the stairs, it was not exactly the torture that it looked to be. It was something he enjoyed doing. He went from being a pampered pet of a wealthy family, older people, very quiet household, to uh, this very busy life uh, amid strangers and a guardian who was constantly, she had her, her hand in all these different charities. And uh, like my Freddie,
1: he rose to the occasion, which dogs often do anyway. So it gives the sense that Muggins had a, a sense of agency over what was happening. That yes, you know the, the way you talk, like he he was conscious of what he was doing. He probably wouldn't be conscious of the, the larger war effort and the geopolitical realities no. of the era, but but of the day to day, he's conscious of it. So what does that tell us then about that relationship between Muggins and the, the handlers, and and just in or even just in general, the way in which dogs can be or have been trained by human beings for practical purposes. And sometimes it's for bad things. If you look at sort of a Michael Vick dog fighting scenario, sometimes it's for good purposes where you, when you look at guide dogs for people who are visually impaired, right? So, you know, it kind of runs the gamut, but is there any kind of insights that Muggins provides into the general nature of those relationships and how much agency the animals might have in building and crafting the nature of those relationships.
0: When I was of course I built muggins on the back of an earlier book of my 2015 biography of of rags, um a uh, a French uh, uh stray that was picked up by members soldiers from the American uh, first division in France in World War 1 and turned into a messenger dog. The US Army did not have messenger dogs at that time, only the the Brits and the and the uh, central powers had them and so the way rags was trained to run messages was for one thing he was he was trained by the man that he had chosen the soldier he had chosen who meant everything to him and this man evidently trained him by showing him how to you know he had to carry a piece of paper in his mouth and run from one place to another and he would get a reward. And of course, there is the reward factor in, in all human-animal relationships and in all human relationships, actually. Yeah. Um, and so Rags would get a reward. It, it, it seems to have been centered on doing what his human, his guardian wanted and to please his guardian. I know dogs are always watching to see what we're doing. They're watching... Obviously, to see what can I get out of a particular situation, like just like us, but also what is making my human happy, and I really think that had a lot to do with how Muggins uh, operated. He, when, when you see him at work in that that um, snippet of, of uh, newsreel, it all jives with what I found in written accounts of his directness. His looking directly at people as they came up to him, which is not a not a canine, it's not a common canine characteristic. Staring at a dog does not is not usually if they're looking at you that way, they love you very much or they're afraid. He looked this way to everyone. He was remarkably trusting, very, very quiet, calm, patient little dog, and gracious little dog. His reward seems to have been filling up those tins and also seeing, from what I could tell based on the evidence, seeing the happiness of not only Beatrice Woodward, his guardian, but the many other people who looked after him. There was a clergyman uh, named Reverend Arthur Owen, who was one of the great old-fashioned clergymen uh, that you read about in, in novels, who went about Victoria on his bicycle, who uh, found money for um, elderly widows who didn't have coal, couldn't didn't have money to buy coal in the winter, who raised funds to build housing for returned soldiers when nobody would rent them rooms, an echo of what happened after the Vietnam War with returned veterans, and how much he he loved Muggins. They were considered a team just as much as Muggins and Beatrice Woodward, and and he saw that what he did pleased people. He was also uh, fated a, a great deal. He was invited to these events in his honor at the, at the Empress Hotel. He was given medals. He was given um, attention. So I think it was, a, it was a mutual adoration society going on at that time with him and the people around him. And uh, uh, for the most part, it was, a hap- I think, a happy experience. He wasn't overworked. He only was out on his table about four hours a day. And that said, the way he died, does I I do raise the the question of whether he was overworked or stretched too thin. His death from pneumonia in the winter, after he had been out quite frequently, based on the newspaper reports, been out gathering uh, funds, this time for returned veterans. It's quite obvious that he was exposed to a lot of cold. And the fact that his guardian, Beatrice Woodward, not only left Victoria, but she left Canada after his death, as if she felt that she had had some part in overworking him. To that point, I I, I speculate. I speculate.
1: Well, that leads to the larger ethical question about using animals for these types of purposes. You, you, yeah. know, you mentioned before we started to record that human beings will use animals in a conflict that the animals had no part in creating. Yes. And certainly, there's been research done about horses and, and dogs on the front lines, who were used directly by the military uh, on all sides, to prosecute the war but then you have the realities of just the wildlife in these areas both during the conflict and subsequently the environmental damage that was done the impact that that has on the animals and then you have a case like this where you have muggins who appears to have this agency and enjoys what he's doing but there's there is an ethical dynamic to it all so as you're writing these stories and you're trying to give voice to the animals. Where is that line for you? And, and how can human beings try to define that uh, as to what is appropriate relationships with animals when we're talking about a wartime situation?
0: And of course, we've had recent uh, reports of animal abuse, of uh, the abuse of uh, or neglect of, of farming animals here on the island just in the past few days that the SPCA had to uh, had to jump in and, and uh, make right my principle I think I, I know the one I was brought up with from my my cradle onward because my parents believed it is that animals need to be taken seriously. there are people who have pets and they're fine with that but in our family they were seen as members of the family and when they when they were ill or die or died it was taken very seriously as if, members of the family had died, no differently from that. And there have actually been a few generations that, that were like that in my on both sides of my family. If we can take animals seriously and take their loyalty seriously, never take it for granted. Always be try to be with them where they are and not treat them like things. And that's part of the reason why people who abuse animals get away with it. They're animals in but in law, are still considered possessions rather than beings. You know, things rather than beings. I feel like the animals I've written about. The reason, the thing that attracted me to write about them, was that there were people, there were humans who were, who saw past their use in war, saw past rags um, as a a robot to carry messages through gunfire to save a, a battalion. Or Dorothy Brooke, uh, who I wrote about, she who saved uh, neglected former war horses that had been left behind in Egypt in the 1930s. And then, of course, Muggins, and then my book about uh, Emily Carr and her monkey Woo. They all took these animals who were in their lives seriously, and they gave them whatever agency they were capable of assuming. They weren't controlled. They weren't exploited at least it wasn't seen as exploitation at the time now it's it's a fuzzy area a lot of the things that were were taken for granted even 50 years ago they seem exploitative now anybody who goes to a zoo as a child is probably not going to have the same ex- experience later on in life when they go to a zoo if they've if they see those animals as sentient beings and see them looking through bars and again without sentimentalizing too much but would we want to be there? I like to think, no, I wouldn't want to be in a cage. Um, So I I feel like my main theme throughout these books and and through especially Muggins is this is what they do for us when we trust them, when we teach them that there's nothing to fear, and they teach us that there's nothing to fear and help us, as I say, clean up the messes that we create, that they have no business. They have no part in making, but That's that loyalty that that I think we should take
1: seriously. But then how do we frame this as, again, to get back to you want to give a voice to the animals, but so much of the animal's experience is governed by human beings and the relationship with people. So, you know, is this ultimately a story of muggins or is this a story of the people and the society that surrounded muggins in the course of his life it's about all of that in the book i i i delved into beatrice
0: woodward's ancestry a little bit uh in the mid the, the english midlands where the grinding poverty she came out of uh, un, unbelievable unimaginable poverty in the uh the late victorian period and how sometimes a family would be so poor that a, a child would have to be handed over to another branch of the family. Uh, sometimes all of their children would be scattered around to different branches of the family so that they could all survive because the mother and father didn't just didn't have the means. Beatrice escaped that with her husband, came to Canada. They made a good life for themselves here. They adopted one of their relatives, a boy named Willie, and brought him out. And it makes me think... There was a tendency to, to want to rescue those in need or, or to step in and intervene. And that intervention was something that was not just done by, by soldiers, all of them male at that time, but the women who were left behind, women like Beatrice, uh, women like uh, all, many of the other ladies in Victoria who, uh, who formed committees, to send bandages, to uh, knit socks, everything, to raising thousands and thousands of dollars for supplies, uh, for um, ambulances. And when these men came home, these women were there to greet them. The book is as much about those people as it is about Muggins, but it started with this one woman seeing what was possible in this little dog in terms of helping her help other people who needed it. She had a brother-in-law who was a prisoner of war. She uh, was evidently activated by this need to be useful in this um, this terrible, I mean, they thought the war was going to be over by Christmas, 1914. Right. And by the time Muggins entered the picture in 1916, it was clear this was an absolute hell on earth. Uh, situation, and in that vein, it's it's almost comical that people would would think that raising funds through a little dog would be of any use. But I heard from descendants of one of the prisoners of war that Muggins uh, sent food to, that you know they wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the little dog raising funds for their ancestors. So I have my own beliefs about what is exploitation and what is, there are a number of things, I, 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 but I, it's not about me. So to a certain degree, I, I can insert some of my opinions about that in any of these books, but ultimately it's not about me. And I don't want to interfere with someone's appreciation of this animal's life and legacy who may not have that or may may have more that they need to learn or just are seeing they're just seeing it as a, an animal's life story. That's one thing I have to be very careful about because I have strong opinions about what should, <laughs> what and, what shouldn't be done with animals, as, as did my my parents. But the important thing was to, with Muggins, was to show you know, to start with this little dog who about whom there are so many stories. Find what what was what could be proven, uh, discard what could be disproven, and also sh- sh- sort of tell a tale of what one little dog can mean to uh, not only one life, but to innumerable lives. I mean, in the book, I tell about the, uh, the, the man I met in downtown Victoria, a homeless man who uh, had his little white dog with him all the time. I, I befriended him because I saw him on my way to and from work, found out that uh, he was outside because there were very few shelters that would take him with his dog. And then I also found out from him that uh, there was drug taking activity that he he didn't want his dog to be around that. But it was also dangerous on the streets because there was turf. And if he was on somebody else's turf, there would be, you know, uh, threats of violence, and he didn't want his dog getting hurt. And he said, I would don't know what I would do without him. And I thought, all of this on this one little dog doesn't even know. It's just a happy little thing. It's it's there with him, it it's happy wherever he is, as long as he can be with his person. It told me a lot about what the dogs used in war, what what might be their experience, uh, what might be the thing that would get them through the experience of all that fear. I tried to see it in a, a, in a larger picture uh, as well as the, the the smaller portrait of the dog
1: and that's something that you know, we do it, It just from your answer, right? You get the sense of you know, how complicated these stories can be, how, how complicated these yeah. relationships can be. and yeah. it, But it's the same with human beings too, right? The, the war front, uh, being on the front lines, being at home, the different responsibilities, the fractured relationships, the ethical yeah. dilemmas yeah. of it. All these things exist in the human to animal relationship just as they exist in the human to human. And it's works yes. like this that highlight that and just show how we can't, as you said earlier, you can't take it for granted and you have to really delve into it and appreciate what's going on. And it shows the power play. I mean, the the human always has the balance of power.
0: I mean, the, the human has all the power really over the animal, but also there are humans that have power over other humans and it's how they use it, how they abuse it. As sad as the story is, this little dog only had three years of doing his work in downtown Victoria and elsewhere. He also went to the States uh, he went uh, he went other parts of BC and um, how he, there are all these pictures of him in the newspaper with his medals and all of his, and, you know, I'm thinking, well, okay, but was this not tiring? Did, did he ever get a chance to rest? Was he overworked? Did he stay out in the cold too long? That last Christmas when uh, he was out collecting money in downtown Victoria, did that contribute to the pneumonia he got? That, that killed him in January, 20, uh, 1920. I mean, it's a very fraught. And then the fact that, as I haven't mentioned yet, the fact that his body, his taxiderm body was used to raise funds during the second world war. He was uh, stuffed and mounted, placed in the window of a uh, of the, uh, uh, the Red Cross um, thrift store in downtown. And that's where he remained for most of the war the years of the war, people putting coins in his tin boxes and uh, the exposure, the body was either in the window or it was out on the sidewalk. This exposure actually led to the disintegration of it. And finally, the mounted figure fell apart. There was one little bit of hair left that uh, ended up with a descendant of Beatrice Woodward's family. And then that was lost in a a move to another house. So there's like nothing left. He was used up. And we wouldn't approve of a human charitable human being stuffed after death and used for used for um, for for fundraising. So why is it okay with a, a little dog? I don't know, but um, it's it's been done i it's it's certainly I mean, anybody that, that reads the book will see that there are other I found other examples of of stuffed dogs that much older than Muggins who are still collecting money in various parts of the UK today they're in glass boxes and that's just the way it is so it's that there's a there's um, a love and a, and a reverence for this animal but there's also a dis, a kind of a disrespect that maybe they're not aware of maybe the people aren't aware that they're utilizing when they do this to the animal I don't know it's a complicated yeah. subject for sure
1: it's uh, yeah certainly is a lot of layers so we've really only scratched the surface here today but again the book Muggins The Life and Afterlife of a Canadian Canine War Hero and as you can tell from our, our chat uh, a lot to unpack in this book so certainly would encourage everybody to, to check it out so Grant if people want the book or if they are interested in some of your other work uh, biographies of animals and the relationships between uh, these specific animals and, and human beings where should you point them to check it out
0: if they want to go to my my website if they just want to google my name Grant Hader Menzies h-a-y-t-e-r dash uh, That should lead them to my website. But if you enter put my name in uh, on um, any Amazon or any other online bookseller, you can find or go to your bookstore uh, and, and see what they have there. But all of the, the the books about animals are featured on my on my website, and a number of, of interviews I've given over the years.
1: Terrific. And uh, yeah, check the show notes below. Uh, If you're listening to this on an an app, we'll link to that. And uh, if you're at activehistory.ca and the post that I'll write for this, we'll, we'll link everything there. So definitely encourage you to check it out. So Grant Hader Menzies, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. So there you have it. My chat with Grant Hader Menzies. My thanks to him. And again, the book is Muggins, The Life and Afterlife of a Canadian War Hero from our friends out at Heritage House Publishing. So certainly encourage you to check it out. As I said, we'll have the links in the show notes if you want to check out Grant's website or check out the book. So that's it for this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show, wherever you get your podcast. do likes, rating, comments, all that good stuff to help keep the show growing. Let other people know what we're doing here on the pod of course, if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, history slam at gmail.com, or you can reach out on Twitter at the Sean Graham. And of course, head on over at activehistory.ca. Lots of great content over there and all of our past episodes are available under the podcast tab. So thanks again, everybody for listening. We'll be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're out, AC Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me.